So we remain standing for the reading of the text from Matthew chapter 9. I'll begin reading at verse 14 down through verse 17. Now hear the word of God. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Our gracious Father, we confess that in our own wisdom that we cannot understand the parables that our Lord have instructed and given us the truth, but you have given us the Spirit, and so we ask that the Spirit would now open the eyes of our heart to not only understand with our minds, but to receive these things deeply in our hearts, that our lives would be changed and affected for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Empower the message with your Spirit and make the specific applications to each one of us personally that when we leave here, we might leave encouraged in change that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a certain way of thinking, perhaps even for years, that you come to find out was wrong? And even when you come to find out that that certain way of thinking that was wrong, you have a hard time making the right kind of changes? Or perhaps you've had some long-term plans for your family or your business or your work life and it just didn't work out the way you had hoped? Or have you ever had your expectations set firmly a certain way only to find out that God had an entirely different plan for your life? We all grow up a certain way in a cultural context with a worldview that shapes the way that we think, even the way that we plan for the future, and the way we live life in the present. And along the way, there are influences that shape us into who we are and who we become. Some of those are good, some of those are not so good. And so we get set in our ways. And we become hard to change. Oftentimes it's hard for us to see things a new way or a different way. But when Jesus enters into our life, everything, everything becomes new. In fact, each day is new. You really cannot count on things remaining the same, or how you expected things to go, or according to how you planned out your life. Jesus calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. Not by our 15-year plan. Not to say that that is in and of itself wrong. Don't give yourself so rigidly to it that you can't make the necessary changes and adjustments that He is going to put in your life, and He will do so. Jesus calls us to walk by faith. 
He calls us to walk by something, a sight that is not part of our natural makeup in this physical man. He calls us to see things that he has put there that our eyes cannot behold. Our minds cannot conclude the same things that he has revealed and that he will guide us in the spirit to see. So that's why Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about it. It's a pretty broad statement. Do not worry about your money. We've already been through that. Do not try to figure out your future. It's all going to change. I would not be here speaking to you today if my plan had I set out to be an engineer. I know some of you still think I am. (laughs) I had no plans, no desires to be in the ministry. And I will say that it is the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life when Jesus directed me a different way. Oh, it was scary and it was fearful and There were things that I could worry about and some things I did and the weakness and doubts of my faith, but it has been the most glorious adventure beyond what I could have ever set down as a course for my life. And I love adventure. And God says, I'll give you lots of it. And He has and continues to do so. When you begin your new journey with Jesus, every single day is a new day. God's mercies are new every single day. That new song that God has put into your heart is to be sung with newness and freshness every day. The gospel is a life of a total and committed trust in following the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not just something that started in your past, but it is something that happens all over new each day. You might not think about it that way. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. When you set out to follow Jesus, you're going to find new adventures and new joys and a new way of thinking and new living. And because of that newness, it's not merely something that happened one time, but it's fresh every day, just as life is as we follow Jesus. Our tendency, however, in the flesh is to resist change. I remember one time when Hewlett Packard, what I was working for previously, was undergoing a major um, reconstruction of the corporate structure in which we were, and everywhere they had their propaganda, and it was S-O-W with a big circle and a line crossed through it, no more, same old way. And so we were just indoctrinated. Don't think about the same old way. We got a whole different way. We got to look at things. We got a whole new different way of doing things. And of course, that brings uneasiness to a people in a corporation. The morale can 
get pretty low, especially if you're not trusting your leadership or you have doubts in that. We're a people that are hard to change because change can be frightening. And we don't make changes easily, certainly not in the flesh. But you have to understand that is at the very heart of the gospel. It calls us to change. And we have to give ourselves over to Jesus daily because He's all about changing us daily and changing our lives radically. So today, we walk by faith. We need to be experiencing fresh today the new path that Jesus has for my life and my thinking. Think about all those sins right now, all that baggage in your life that is still prominent and that you fight against and you wrestle with. Do you want that just to continue? Jesus said it doesn't have to. It's not my plan for it to. But if we are not postured in the right manner for Jesus' lead, we can resist the very path that He has for us, which is far better than anything we could imagine for ourselves. So be assured, whatever you have planned out, whatever you have figured out in life, whatever vision of success you have, be assured, Jesus has something far better if you but trust Him and follow His leadership. What we have in this passage before us is a challenge to our thinking and the culture and the practice of the day and an introduction to something new if they could hear it. And I think there's some very practical applications that apply to us even today. So this morning I want to preach to you on new things. And I want to challenge you to be open to the daily newness of the gospel life. It's not the same old way. In other words, be open to change. Jesus is given again an opportunity to reveal some truth to us as he's questioned by some of the disciples of John about fasting. I know it's going to disappoint some of you here today, but this is not a message Neither is it a passage about fasting. Another passage, another day, but not this day. Jesus responds to the question that they bring to him in three very short parables. And his answer was informing us that a new way of thinking, a new way of life was upon them, and if they had ears to hear then let them hear and give themselves entirely over to this one who will lead them right in those new changes. So we see Jesus, as he addresses this, he's going to address the current culture of the day and he corrects their thinking about what they do and who he is. And so the question comes to him, the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And so he answers in verse 15, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, these were disciples of John, that's notable. 
Their question is not necessarily an accusation, which we would expect if it was coming from the scribes and the Pharisees. Perhaps it's more genuine. Or perhaps some Pharisees were behind the question and trying to get them to ask why. Because there was something in common with the disciples of John and these Pharisees. They, they do fast often. But the one thing that these would have known, being disciples of John the Baptist, being studiers and students of what he taught, the one thing certain is they would know is that reference to the bridegroom that Jesus used in his answer. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist says, You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this of my joy is fulfilled. Students of a master would have understood and have heard that teaching. And the reference of the bridegroom that John the Baptist referenced of Jesus and that teaching that is implied there, they would have connected with how Jesus answered with the bridegroom if their ears were open. Now this proclamation of John regarding the bridegroom was well understood Old Testament reference. This was not anything new, not merely from one passage, but dozens of passages in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Yahweh of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Dozens of other passages are like that, so we are left with no question regarding the reference of who a bridegroom or the husband of God's people is. But they come to Jesus with this question about fasting. Fasting was a very common practice in Jesus' day. The interesting thing is, there is no Old Testament passage that commands any of God's people ever to fast. The closest thing we have would be on the Day of Atonement when the people were told to afflict their souls, which most likely included in that fasting. But even though the Scripture does not command fasting in the precepts of the law, except perhaps maybe that one day, he, Jesus did seem to commend it in Matthew chapter 6, if it was done in the right way. And I think I will just go ahead and make a little side application here. During the time of the Reformation, there were two principles that came down to us on how we are to worship. There was one principle that was kind of championed by Martin Luther called the normative principle, and that principle would say that whatever is not forbidden in the Scriptures is lawful for us to practice, and this was pertaining to the worship of God. It was a regulative principle 
championed a bit more by Calvin, which says only what is expressly commanded is lawful in the way we worship God. And we at Heritage would certainly hold to the regulative principle, not the normative principle. The normative principle is what is by and large what we see uh, going on in a lot of churches today when they have rodeos for their morning worship time and all sorts of hoopla and dog and pony shows that go on because they would say it's not forbidden that we can do this. That would not be the way that we would see the Scripture unfold. But we do need to be careful in light of passages like this, not depressed so far that we don't notice the subtle implications in the Scripture that provide direction for us, even though they not, might not be an express command. Fasting was commended, even though it was not commanded. And while fasting was not a command, and we see it as a commended practice, we see it often in Scripture. number of examples that we have through the Old Testament, they fasted from sunset to, or sunrise to sunset. There was a seven-day fast. We see fasting for three weeks. We see several 40-day fasts. In the history of God's people, as we move further down the history, we see even more fasting coming about so that in Zechariah's time, in chapter 7, we have the fast of the fifth and the seventh month. By the next chapter of chapter 8, we have the fast of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth month. By the time that the Pharisees come around in Jesus' day, it had reached its climax to twice a week fasting. And so the disciples want to know, well, you know, it's twice a week we're supposed to be fasting. Why do your disciples not fast? We do it. Pharisees do it. You guys don't. Well, I think it's important to note, even in those many examples, why people fasted. The examples we have in Scripture of people fasting was when things like when someone was sick or when someone was seeking the face of God in a great time of difficulty or during a period of mourning or when there was an impending catastrophe or when they were experiencing a disaster like pestilence or when someone was very penitent in heart, and he was trying to convey the depth of that to the Lord. Those were the examples we have of fasting in the Old Testament. So in, throughout the Old Testament, fasting was something you did in the midst of or when you were anticipating something negative. It was for negative times. And as we look at the Lord's answer regarding fasting, He turns to the parable of the the bridegroom and He makes clear that He is the bridegroom. And with the coming of the groom, there's an emotion and an experience which would not have been negative. We've had a great opportunity to have several weddings of this past year. We're looking forward to another one in January, and it is not something that we are like, oh, man, not another wedding. I've never known anybody in this church or this church corporately to have that kind of spirit. In fact, when there's not weddings coming up, we get a little antsy. We like the joy and the festivity and all of the happiness of this great time of anticipation of this young woman and young man who have all their lives and it's coming to this great time and it's a corporate and covenantal thing and there's great feasting. 
and joy and happiness and celebration around these things. It's always been that way. In fact, for those who recognize Jesus as the groom, and if they fasted, they would have been communicating something that was exactly opposite of the reality. They would have been communicating something wrong. If they understood who Jesus really was, they would have been feasting and not fasting. In fact, that's what Jesus did. Jesus came feasting. Now, John the Baptist, right? He was the forerunner. little different. He came with more rudimentary dress. He came with, as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He came with a limited diet, but not Jesus. Jesus came eating and drinking, and the Pharisees accused him of a wine-bibber, a drunkard, and a glutton. He wasn't that, but that's what they accused him of. Why? Because Jesus came feasting. He feasted with the sinners and the publicans and the tax collectors. We find him feasting. Because he was communicating something new. Which would rock their old traditional set in their way kind of righteousness that was just plain wrong. And how similar are some of these old works righteousness still around for many even in the evangelical world today? There is sometimes a notion that the more strict life is the more holy life, which can be a pitfall if not properly understood in the gospel. And of course, the flesh would love to take all sorts of gospel liberties to please itself in ungodly ways, to justify it with the gospel. So we have to watch out for the ditches on both sides of the road. We have to know the gospel. Jesus is expressing that. The theology in the very heart here of feasting is right before them when these being questioned about fasting. But what he's really not doing, he's not giving us a New Testament theology of fasting. Sorry. While the groom is present with them, it's not a time for fasting. Oh, there's going to be a time for that when he departs from them, when he goes to the cross, and that'll be a time for his disciples to fast. In the New Testament, we live in the already and the not yet, so we do see fasting continue. And at the same time, we have a feast before us today, which is really enjoying the presence of the groom, unlike the Old Testament feast, which anticipated only his presence, we actually have it. We are not anticipating it. When we feast today, by the way, today is not a day of fasting. Never a Lord's Day should be a day of fasting, but of feasting. It's looking forward to, and yea, even is a foretaste of that great marriage supper of the Lamb, another wedding feast of which we have a first installment of this day with great joy, 
The Lord's Supper is never meant, never has been meant to be a morbid, overly self-introspection of one time a year where you have to prepare yourself for it and you come so weighty that there is no joy in it. No. You prepare yourself for this supper in the gospel. Jesus prepares you for this by giving you those wedding garments. You must come to the wedding feast and enjoy the feast that is going on. And when Jesus we are prepared, in Jesus we celebrate, in Jesus and with Him we feast. That's what this is about. That's why we look forward to it every Lord's Day. Why we miss it greatly when we happen to be visiting somewhere else and they don't have it. So he's going to continue his answer and he's going to expound it now with two additional parables which will extend his thought about new things, new happenings. The first one is a parable of a new cloth. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. I don't sew. Many of you do. It's intimidating for me to even talk about this illustration. <laughs> If you sew, you quickly understand the illustration here, particularly if you sew with natural fiber uh, kinds of material. All right, now I'm getting in the place where I'm really uncomfortable. But if you sew uh, with cotton, one of the things you probably do, and please just give me an affirmation that you're with me on this, ladies, by a nod of the head or like... uh, (laughs) Before you sew something, you go get material that's 100% cotton, do you not... Wash it first to pre-shrink it? Okay, that's good. All I remember is a nice sweater that went into the wash and went into the dryer and it came out as baby clothes. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the idea. If you, if you take an unshrunk new patch of cloth and you then append it or try to fix a repair in an old garment, that has already been shrunk, what happens is when you go to wash it, you're going to have a tear because now the new unshrunk cloth will finally shrink and it's going to pull away from the old and it's even going to be worse than it was before. And where's the Lord going with this? The Lord is talking about the coming of His kingdom and the presence of the king which is now before them, the bridegroom. He's talking about himself and his kingdom that they had long waited for, including all of the practices of the kingdom that would be set up here on this earth. And the first thing we need to notice here in these parables is there is a point of similarity and a point of continuity with that of the old. In the illustration of the cloth here, both things are cloth. There's continuity, not discontinuity, with the things that are past. But the newness of the kingdom will be far greater in power and glory and grace. And the life of the kingdom will be so different from the old way of doing things that the two will be incompatible. You can't just patch up the old with the new. There's a radical change that is upon them right then and right there. And they need to be ready to adjust, ready to think, ready to make those transitions and those changes. And they need to understand deeply the doctrine of the Old Testament. 
and the theology that is being applied right before their very eyes in its fulfillment in order to make those necessary changes. They cannot make the necessary changes for the kingdom in light of a trite, an easy, light approach of the gospel like so many churches are doing today. No, it's deep, people, and you need to understand theology and doctrine at a pretty deep level in order to make the changes that God wants to make of you today. The gospel is deep, and it's relevant, and it is true and changing today. Changing you today. Because the gospel makes radical changes in our life. It demands those changes of us. And it makes them of us every day. And we have to understand what's going on to help us give ourselves entirely to it. We reserve ourselves so much because we don't understand. Or what we don't understand we fear. But God has said, you know, I've revealed this to you. And you can give yourself wholly and entirely to Jesus. The second parable of the new wine and the old wineskins is saying much of the same thing, but given a different perspective. Nor do they put new wine in old wineskins, or the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine in new wineskins and both are preserved. The wineskins of those days were made out of tanned leather and they would sew the leather up. Some of those wineskins were made of complete animal skins where they'd sew the arms or the legs up and use the neck hole for the pouring of the wine. They would sew it up. But an old wineskin, which is a tanned leather over time, would become brittle and it would crack. It would not be supple or flexible and it would lose its elasticity. When you make wine... As soon as you crush a grape, you can't help but a wine process beginning because on the outside of the grape, now I'm not talking about the grapes in your grocery store that have been washed and cleansed with bleach and everything else. I'm talking about out in the wild, grapes have inherently natural yeast on its, on its cover and they have sugar on the inside and all you have to do is crush a grape and immediately the fermentation process starts. Grapes want to become wine. And so as soon as that process begins, the yeast of the skin and the sugar of the grape begins a a chemical process turning the sugar into alcohol and in the byproduct is a CO2 gas that gives off. And during the first particularly 10 days, which is where the majority of the fermentation takes place, you have this transformation that goes on. But even after that wine has become mostly fermented, there's residual amounts of gases that are put off and continuing changing of the sugar into alcohol. So you take this new wine and you are to put it in an old wine skin while you still have the bubbling CO2 gas that's coming off and you seal that thing. It has no elasticity. It's going to burst out of this old wine skin. That's the picture here. It's well understood in those days, not so much in our own. 
He says you can't do that. That old wineskin is incompatible for the new wine that is put in it. And it's going to ruin both of them. And we don't want the old wineskin ruined, and we don't want the new wine spilled. The point of continuity here is we're talking about both wineskins. Both of these things are wineskins. But there is so much continuity that you might be tempted to put the new wine right into the old structure. And that is not compatible. But that new thing connected with Jesus in His ministry is so powerful and so glorious and so gracious that the old structure simply will not do. It's not sufficient. And the point of what Jesus is saying here is He is the bridegroom. He is the maker. He is Yahweh of hosts. He is the redeemer of Israel. He is present right there before their eyes. And if you're talking about his relationship with the old things in which people were so accustomed to in relating to God, he and his ministry will be like new cloth and new wine. Fasting is like the old cloth. If there's a defect in the old cloth, the tendency is to patch it up, but that simply will not do with Jesus and his kingdom. The way people were used to relating to God through the old structure in the Old Testament was like the old wine. And if you try to relate to God in those old ways, now in the presence of the very king who is bringing in the kingdom, it won't work. You need to be ready for a change. Something new. Jesus is not calling us to a more devout and a more rigorous approach to the same old thing. I'll let you make a forward application of that in your own personal life today. But he is bringing in new cloth. He's bringing in new wine. And there is a need for a new wineskin. It's interesting and perhaps a bit ironic that the only explanations the Jews could come up with on that day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out as they were drunk with new wine. When Jesus comes, the King has come and the kingdom of God has come upon His people and the kingdom is here. It has been here for 2,000 years. We are not waiting sometime in the future for it to come. It has been here. It has been growing. And King Jesus has presented a new structure. The structure of the Old Testament was being fulfilled and no longer needed. The structure, however, is that ceremonial law. The way that people related to God was through the ceremonial law. The sacrifices of blood and of bulls and goats, the whole sacrificial system, the old Aaronic priesthood, and all those ways in which people were accustomed and related to God were old, no longer needed. And if you tried to just make it something different, it's just not going to work. Yes, there's continuity with the old, undoubtedly. Continuity as something is being fulfilled. Something as a shadow is forecasting and showing forth the the actual reality of the image. Now the image is here, no longer the shadow and the scaffolding needed. But there are some radical differences here in the new. And you have to remember, he's speaking to Jews. 
When Jesus came, He fulfilled all those old structures. There's continuity. He did not come to change the law, but to fulfill it. And that fulfillment would usher in a whole new way of thinking about the kingdom, a a new way of relating to God, a new temple. Uh, The fulfillment of the old things would be so profound, it would appear as something entirely new. Though it was not entirely. It was related. It's connected with what has gone before. The Jews of Jesus' day, you've got to imagine, this is coming right into the throw of thousands of years of Hebrew history and of prophecy, and it's being fulfilled in a very short amount of time in one person who is God Himself. And they were confronted with a radical change in their thinking and their practices, the way they lived their lives, the way they thought about God and His kingdom. It would demand of them an absolute, utter trust and commitment to this one man, Jesus. And yet it would provide for them a far superior life, kingdom life, than the one for which they were hoping. Is that not same principle true for us today? The old life of the old man is radically different from the new life in Christ that Jesus has called us to. In order to give ourselves wholly to this new life, it requires faith. Not merely a one-time faith, but a daily faith. Each day is a new day. The just shall live by faith. You woke up this morning from being asleep last night. You went to sleep. And eight hours of your life, give or take six and a half for some, went by and you hardly noticed And you really didn't. And you woke this morning like a resurrection after having been laid out all night, kind of like a death. But this morning was a new day. And there's new life and new hope. And God's mercies are new to us this day. And the question before us is, how are you going to live your life this new day? According to the old ways? According to the old man? According to old baggage? Or with the newness and a freshness of faith in following Jesus? That man. That God. As the gospel calls us to change, it calls us to a constant change. Are we too set in our old ways or too fixed in our expectations to make those adjustments and changes that Jesus may be calling in you today. You have particular plans of what your future will look like based on unbiblical grounds. Is your theology right? Is your doctrine sure? Are our expectations of the future so set deeply that changes from God will be resisted? should he desire 
a right turn, and you want to keep on straight. The gospel is a walk every day by faith. And if you give yourselves entirely to this man, you don't have to worry about the future, tomorrow, your money, your clothes, and any of that other stuff. Just give yourself to this king and to the kingdom first. And all those other things will be taken care of. That old man has to be replaced with the new man in Christ daily. We still have a residual of the old that has to change. He has to go. And that's sanctification. Put off the old man with his deeds by putting on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge and holiness and righteousness after the image of him that created us. And if change comes, that means you have to be open for it. You have to be adjustable, flexible. You have to be open to new biblical ideas. Not new biblical, but new to you and your understanding. Or a better understanding of God's ways. Or become set in our mind and our traditions in such a way that may not be correct. And when we're called to go the way Jesus wants to go, we might resist it. Just like the Jews in his own day when he was telling them of the greatness of the kingdom and something was incompatible and something was new and they would not hear it. And yet the greatest glory and joy stood before them speaking to them in audible ways that they heard with their ears. Their hearts could not receive it. The psalmist declares, God has put a new song in my heart. He also declares, I will sing a new song unto the Lord. And when he says that, he takes this and makes it fresh and new. The very song that God places in our heart, the psalmist takes it and makes it new. Every time he comes to it. And that's the way we need to live our life. The newness of every day. Be flexible. Don't be set in your ways. Don't have your heels dug in. Don't have your plans so fixed that when God desires to call an engineer out of a successful job and into the ministry where he knew not where he was going to go, what he was going to do, or how he was going to feed his family, that that would keep him from the will of God. Be easy to change. Be easy to adjust to a new way a new adventure, and a new calling. Following Jesus is life to the fullest. That's what John was trying to express about the bridegroom. Far surpassing anything that you could dream up. So don't be fearful of new things. Do not fear or worry about tomorrow. If you trust Jesus today, tomorrow will be cared for. Today, Jesus wants you to give yourself wholly and committed to Him so that you hear His voice, you know His lead, and you can understand the new wine He has for you. The kingdom life is new wine, and it will be fresh every single day that you trust and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, make the gospel vital and lively and new and fresh to us this day. 
May we put off all of the old man and the fears and the doubts and the misunderstandings and the, the ways of our thinking and the ways of our life that our heels are so dug in that we do not hear the changes that you want us to make. Or we resist those things because we fear them. Or take our hearts and open it up. Drive far from us any idolatry that would hinder the work of the Spirit in changing us to be more like Jesus. To make us a humble people and do with us according to your goodwill. And may we make it easy for King Jesus to make us his servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.